going to wrap up this part of the series. So tonight will be the, the last night until we resume again after the holidays. Okay, so... <laughs> Here, let me explain why. We're, um, the, uh, subject, I should leave half of these are up here. Oh, well. Um, the subject matter that we've been covering for most of this, most of the series, for, I'd say at least five or six, has been on the, the nature of the Trinity and Jesus and the identity of Jesus. The next planned one was going to have was going to have one hero. Uh, yeah, I forgot about this. I, I uh, at least I told you I gave an error, an erroneous statement there. We were going to do um, I was going to do a di what was going to transition us to a different doctrine apart from Jesus and the Trinity. And we're going to get into a new hero that we're going to spend probably four or five weeks on, the one hero. And so, so I thought, well, next week's Thanksgiving week. This one wraps up this series pretty well and ends it here. It's a good stopping point. And, um, and so we'll cover three heretics tonight, and then this will be the, it'll be the last one for until after the holidays. Okay? It is Augustine. I'm glad you didn't say Augustine. <laughs> That's my that was my one of my professors. Saint Augustine is in Florida. Yes. <laughs> Augustine is in heaven. Saint Augustine's in Florida. So, um, so tonight we're looking at three more heretics here, and let me find all my notes here. My notes are kind of a, in disarray. Handwritten ones, that. Sorry, that's because we came in early. We prevented you from <laughs> finishing setting up. What's that? Oh, no. said, sorry, it's our fault. Yeah. No, that was. I was so intrigued by the the whole looking at your um, Bible translation thingy there. I think I got more notes than this. Uh oh. Actually, I forgot to print some. All right. Well, I have to wing it. <laughs> wing it tonight. All right. So here we go. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in um, with our teaching. Our gracious uh, heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we could come into your presence through the work of your Son Jesus, and that. He suffered and died for us to reconcile us to you and that um, through faith in him we're united to him and that even though um, Jesus is um, fully God and fully man he is seated with you at the right hand of your majesty in heaven um, but that's where um, the third person of your trinity the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us and to unite us to Jesus and to, to unite us to you. And so we are so grateful for your um, all of your perfection and the perfectness of your relationships with one another um, in the Godhead. And we thank you that you call us to, to be participants in that um, through faith in your son, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that uh, as we 
explore um, some debates about the identity of who Jesus is and um, uh, what that meant for the early church and what it means for us. I pray you just give us uh, insight, uh, give us understanding, and uh, help us to apply this to our lives. And that we would do this all for your glory and your honor. And it's in Christ's name we pray. All right, so here we go. This I broke this down. I had a different outline, and I thought, I've changed this at the last minute this afternoon. And so here it is. And I'm going to give you all of them at once, and then we might go back and fill in the blanks and tell the story. Okay? So two schools. I think I just erased half of this stuff anyway. Two schools. There were two major schools of, and by schools, I, I don't mean like there's an actual institution or anything like that, a, a building with endowments or whatever. Uh, I'm telling you, there's two main cities that were kind of the central place, the central churches there, where a lot of theology was being done. Um, and a lot of teaching was going out from these, these major Christian centers. Uh, does anybody remember wh uh, what they were from last week, if you were watching the Erase stuff? Anyone remember one of them? Alexandrian School? What's that? Alexandria? Yes. Alexandria. Alexandria, right. So that's the second one I had on the outline. Alexandria, and which was in, do you guys remember what modern country that was in? Egypt. Egypt, that's right. In Alexandria, Egypt. Um, and so if I could give you the adjective, <coughs> the Alexandrian, the Alexandrian school, or school of thought, okay? I know... Uh, what was the uh, what's the other one? Anybody have an idea? Constantinople. Oh, Constantinople. That's a good guess. It's not that, but that's a really good guess. That was a major uh, a major city. Uh, but this, but remember what we learned about Constantinople from last session. It had many names. It had many names, right? Um, and it actually became kind of the Rome of the East because. Yeah, yeah. Byzantium was the city. Constantine basically went in and he rebuilt the entire city. So why it's not classified as one of the major cities is because it's fairly new. Antioch. Antioch, yes. Good job, Steve. Antioch, which is in Syria. It's kind of between like modern-day Syria um, toward Turkey, that border. <laughs> And so here's the adjective you probably would want to know if you were reading Antiochene, E-N-E, Antiochene School. Um, let me give you some, some little sketch about the, uh, and this is where my notes printed would have been nice. Um, let me give you a little bit of the differences, compare and contrast these two schools of thought. We can do it in a lot of different ways. Here's the two that probably stand out the most. Uh, one, they had different ways of interpreting the scripture. The Antioch school had a more um, of a literal slash historical way of, of reading the scriptures. So they, um, so a literal historical understanding. They just kind of looked at the text and they said, what does this text mean? Should we, we can understand what the text is saying. It had, it had an intention that the authors had, and that's, that's it. We can understand it from that. It might be helpful, but it's more helpful to understand the historical, literal 
uh, interpretation when you think of the Alexandrian school, which had a more spiritual or allegorical way of interpreting the scriptures. And so your, your approach to interpreting scriptures could greatly affect uh, how you would understand various passages. So if you have a, a whole school of theologians that have one approach, and they're interacting with a whole school of theologians that have another approach, uh, you could see how you might be, like, the tendency could be to talk past one another. So two different approaches to the scripture, and then they also had two different approaches to understanding the person of Jesus. The Antioch school, both would affirm, by the way, that Jesus was God and that he was man. The Antioch school tended to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. The Antioch school would tend to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. Whereas the Alexandrian school would tend to emphasize the deity of Jesus. Not that they were denying one or the other, although some of them, when they get to, they push an emphasis too far, you would get to uh, the borders of, of denying that, or at least open yourself up to the accusation of it. So um, the Antioch school tended to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, whereas the Alexandrian school emphasized the deity of Jesus. Um, so the Antioch school was often accused of of rejecting or undermining Jesus' deity, and conversely, the Alexandrian school would be uh, accused of rejecting or undermining uh, Jesus' humanity. So those are the different approaches, how they would read the scriptures and how they would understand Jesus. And that comes into play in the debates here, back and forth. Yeah, Joe. Are they working with the same um, like translation, like Septuagint and like one's not in Latin, one's in Greek, or are they using the same scriptures? Yeah, they're they're using the the same scriptures. Yeah, they're looking at it. Uh, part, um, at this point, Latin translations of the New Testament. Those might be around. There, I think there are Latin translations of the New Testament. Some of us will find that out. What, what years? Uh, this would be in the, the third and fourth centuries. Um, or the fourth and into the fifth, actually. Whether there's uh, I'm sure that there are Latin translations there. Um, so, hmm, yeah, that's a good question. Both of these tended to be uh, on the eastern side. Uh, both are on the eastern as opposed to Rome. That would be where, if you would have Latin, they would. But I'm pretty sure that these would have these were mostly in Greek. We're going to get to a couple of the creeds here at the end in, in the um, at the, the councils, and I think they do have a translation in Latin. I'm not sure if they did it at that time, but I know it was the originals of the councils. The the renderings were in Greek, so that's a good question. But basically, they're working from the same text. So those are the two schools of uh, thought that you'll need to, uh, need to be aware of. Here are the three um, heretics. And let me say kind of heretics uh, somewhat loosely uh, because 
where the, where we're getting here, we're really kind of, in some ways, a lot of people would say, boy, it sure seems like they're really splitting some hairs here. And boy, to call this person a heretic, it just seems so close. Um, so just so when I say heretics, just kind of say they have flaws in their theology, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're, you know, they have uh, horns and a and a pitchfork and a pointy tail, right? That doesn't necessarily mean. Um, so here are the heretics, though, to to be uh, aware of: Apollinarius, Apollinarius. He had. Um, a teaching of a way of understanding Jesus that could be classified as, oh, yeah, here, we could call it, well, an adjective to describe this would be Apollinarianism, okay? That's uh, Apollinarius and Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism. Let me give you the other two here real quick. Nestorius. And so the adjective to describe this would be what? Nestorianism. Nestorianism, yeah. <laughs> that would be the view. And then the last one uh, would be uh, Eutyches, E-U-T-Y-C-H-U-S, or Eutychus. And uh, the adjective would be what? Eutychia. Mono, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm tricky. Yes, uh, Eutychianism. Uh, that's it, that's in parentheses there. Um, I was going to try to trick you with that one a little bit, but the the actual one, the actual uh, well, one of the terms for it, Eutychianism or monophysitism. Monophysitism. You may you want to know that one. You want to write that one down. Mono meaning only, right, or one, uh, and this one is one of your key words, so I'll give you the, one of the key words now, down here at the bottom. Physis, P-H-Y-S-I-S, or Fusis, okay? So here are your three heretics. Now let me kind of explain a little bit of the differences between the three heretics. Um, uh, yes, Steve. What word did that go with? It's the uh, on the bullet points. It is the third one down. Person nature. Person nature. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And if you read some of those, you're going, wait a second. One says nature person. One says person nature. <laughs> I know there's something more to that. There's going to be yes. Yeah. <laughs> because these terms are very very similar, and so they almost had to create a distinction. They had almost a set aside one of those words, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, so Apollinarianism, Apollinarius, uh, Apollinarius had a view um, that, oh, and I should give you, um, no, we'll stop there, yeah. Apollinarius, he had um, a view that we will call God in a bod. <laughs> God in a bod. Okay. So let me just let me draw out for you. This is he's asking this question. 
uh, like how do we understand Jesus? How do we understand the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of his deity? How do we understand those things? And so Polinarius said, ah, well, um, what we have here is in one person, you have the body is flesh and human. Okay? Um, but his, his nature is divine. So kind of a, those are supposed to be put together to make a whole, right? So you have the eternal logos, the nature of God, going in and taking over a, a human person physically. So much so that he, it, it evacuates human nature, okay? The, nat, the nature of man. What makes a person a human being, a human person? So it's basically just God, the whole fullness of the divine nature, in just the human parts of the body, like a human body. So it's important to understand the composition of, of man. Uh, there's two different kinds of use. There's, the, there's a, uh, a dualistic side of man and then the, the tri- uh, where there's three parts, like body, soul, and spirit are all each three different things. But throughout much of church history, it was usually understood as two. Uh, soul and spirit, or mind of a person, was all considered kind of those are synonyms for for the um, for the nature of man, um, and then his physical body. So he's a composition of soul and body, or a psychosomatic unity, right? Psuche is the Greek word for soul. Uh, soma is the Greek word for body and so what makes a human being a human being is not just a physical body but a human nature a mind, will, emotions those kind of things here the human nature of Jesus is gone there is no human nature it's just his body just his physical body and that the divine part um, basically squeezes all that out you catching that? Okay. So this is, a, this is essentially a denial of the full humanity of Jesus. It's only a partial humanity. It's just his body, like his physical body. Okay, that's, that's Apollinarius' view. And he came from kind of the Alexandrian school. But I should have asked you, which school do you think he comes from? <laughs> right? The Alexandrian school. Why the Alexandrian school? Because you would emphasize, right, the, 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 the deity, and you would minimize the humanity, the human side. Right? Brandon, you had a question? Um, so the problem with this would be that it would, if you held this view, then Jesus was not really tempted, or at least not in the way that we are. <coughs> Correct. Is that, or is there more to it than that? That's pretty much it, is that the, the problem then which a lot of the critics would, uh, would argue. Cyril of Alexandria is one of the, the main critics of this. And, um, and some of the others that we saw last week, Gregory's, the Gregory's uh, in Basil, is that, well, then you don't have... <laughs> the, the problem with mankind isn't just that his flesh is fallen. It's that his nature's fallen. 
And so in order for a Savior to come and actually redeem, he has to redeem all of it. And so you don't have, you have a partial, you have a partial salvation here. That would be their argument. Yes. So along those lines, you don't have a Jesus that's um, tempted, you know, like, like in, um, he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. Yeah, that would seem to be a verse that would suggest, that would go against the Apollinarian view. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Um, but from the Alexandrian school that had a more spiritual, allegorical approach to interpreting the scriptures, they, they tended to, you would, you'd have Apollinarius would have this. He actually was a, a friend of Athanasius early on before he started to get these kind of views in Athanasius, and he had a kind of a falling out uh, because of this. So, uh, so Apollinarianism denied the full, denied the full, denies the full humanity of Jesus, right? Which is a little bit different than Arianism that we saw last year, which denied what? Did I say last year? Yeah. <laughs> last week. It's a long week if it felt like They denied the deity Denied the deity in more yes in more specific he denied the full deity right because he they said he was a created being he was created before everything else um, and God the Father created the Son and then he created all of the world through the Son and so he is the most exalted of all beings and those kind of things but he's still created he's still capable of that right he's not doesn't share the same essence with the Father. So I've heard people say things that sound Apollinarian. Okay, give like give me an example. I just remember as a child things about Jesus and and kind of thinking about like, well, what does it mean that he was human and could he sin and why did he not how did he manage to not sin if and not that it was ever laid out in these terms, but I feel like this is something that like he's trying to give an answer to a problem that's hard to solve, to a question that's hard to answer and Apollinarius is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I feel like there are probably lots and lots and lots of people who to one degree or another have gone here yeah. Yes. Maybe not from the pulpit, or maybe not in a very public way, but I mean, this so this just sounds very familiar to me. Like yeah. I've heard people say things that sound a lot like this. Yeah. Jesus is, or to just emphasize Jesus's deity to such an extent that it well, to even just describe him in a way that makes it sound like he couldn't really have sinned because of his divine nature. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And we'll we'll get, I'll say this, but we might come back to this again. Um, there, there really is. Uh, that's an interesting question. It's a hypothetical question. Was it possible for Jesus to sin? Like, or could he have? Could he have? Um, it ties your brain in knots. It does tie your brain in knots. Yeah. Um, and I think 
my, the answer that I keep coming back to is there's here's two propositions. Okay, it says that he was tempted in uh, the passage I just read from Hebrews chapter two, I think, that he was tempted in every way as we are. So that the temptation had to have been real, right? Um, now, the, the understanding is, well, unless you could have sinned, then it couldn't have been real. That's the, like the Apollinarian. Like, he had to have been able to sin, otherwise he could, what kind of, how could it really be a temptation? Is that the... Had, or how could it be if fulfilled the law? Oh, yeah. I mean, he did fulfill the law, right. but you're saying, like, how could he yeah. have, was it possible for him to have failed at fulfilling the law? Well, That'd be a different and way if of looking was, at it. If he was only, if he was the vine that took over all human nature, then it would have been no problem for him to fulfill the law. Whereas yes. it was a struggle for him to fulfill the law. Yeah. Because of the human nature that he had. So, and it's Hebrews 4. Oh, Hebrews 4. In 15. Because yeah, read he, that. Four, 15, 16, 17 or so. Yeah. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Yeah. So, so some of the, the Antioch critis, critics of this would say, this is actually then kind of connected to our salvation because if we come to Jesus, the, the means by which we approach the throne of grace is through Jesus. And he's just a, a, a deity that didn't really experience the temptation, um, then how does that really help our humanity? Or if he didn't even, uh, he, he doesn't even uh, have a human nature at all. The person of Jesus doesn't have a human nature at all. How is he really going to solve our problem? Yeah. I think the biggest part of that, too, is just that it, for us to be able to have that relationship, if you are only approaching a deity who couldn't understand, then it's a high priest that doesn't have mercy, sympathy to yeah. your struggle. And yeah. It changes the relationship entirely. You know, yeah. whereas to be able to approach him with confidence that he understands, but he's also expecting you to give out every, you know, not hold anything back. <laughs> Display everything when you approach the throne. Yeah. What is Hebrews? Oh, Charlie. Well, <clears throat> when Satan tempted Jesus, um, he used scripture to, de to fight that temptation. And that was an example to us as well. That's a great point. I, that's a fantastic point. He, he models for us by turning to the scriptures and using those um, when in his very nature. Uh, yeah, that's a good... Yeah. So would it be good to differentiate between human nature and sinful nature? Because, you know, like maybe prior to the fall, I don't know, Adam and Eve didn't have like the sinful nature. They have human nature. Yeah. But then Jesus, when he came, he didn't have that sinful nature, but the human nature. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's a, that could be, a, that's a helpful distinction to distinguish between the two. Uh, so he, he, he entered into and, uh, Contra contrary to the Apollinarian view, 
um, which we'll get to when we get to. So, so uh, sometimes it's better to just explain the whole thing, and then we can come back and talk about it. But, um, the, um, but that, that's a good point, because Jesus, um, even though he didn't sin, he still had the full human nature. So he had a, a human mind, a human will, human emotion, not just a human physical body. Okay? Now, the question to that is also, well, wait, does it, but doesn't he have a divine mind and a divine will? And a, how to, that, we'll get to that here in a second. But, uh, so I would say this. If your view of, if your view of Jesus' temptation um, Give me a moment here. Think through this. If if your view of Jesus's temptation requires, uh, that's not the best way to say it either. Um, well, I started by saying the propositions. The one proposition is that he was made like his brothers in every respect, and he was a, a, a high priest who's able to sympathize, uh, but yet he didn't sin. So it doesn't answer for us the question. Could he have? But if your view of Jesus is uh, to truly understanding us required that he he had to have been able to sin, that goes outside of the bounds of what there, there really is a mystery. There's two propositions there, and so if you say he can't really understand what I'm going through unless I know that he could have sinned then you're going too far. It's good enough to know he shares exactly in all of our humanity and didn't sin. That's the most important thing. If, that makes, if that's good enough. And so it really, what, what we're going to get to is one of the things that it, it, they really do try to put boundaries on that, around a mystery. They being the heretics? They, no, the, well, the, the council that we'll get to at the end because all of this kind of builds they kind of resolve it and then it doesn't really resolve and then another issue pops up it's like whack-a-mole and the whole the mole pops up this way and finally at the fourth council they go okay we think we covered it all and I think they largely do yeah are these three heretics like the same mole in three different holes popping up <laughs> no well no this is so uh let me see here I think uh, Apollinarius is an Alexandrian, Nestorius is an Antiochian, and then Eutyches is also an Alexandrian, except they're extreme versions of them. There's good, there's good Alexandrians and, and good Antiochians, uh, but these are the, ex the extreme versions of it. So it's not all the same, but it's just they're, they're, um, each one has been, each heretic is very beneficial along with Arius to help us to go, it's not that, find the boundaries. Yeah. So you're you're saying he's not full Arius, you he's not fully God. Mm -hmm. Um but Apollinarius is going over here and he's saying but he's not fully human. And so you kind of go that's not right and that's not right. Um and then let's get to Nestorius and then uh, Eutyches and then you'll see how each one of these is like you, you're sitting here creating each person puts forth a, a, a theology about Jesus or a Christology about Jesus and then you kind of go wait a second but that's not right and that's not right and that's not right and that's not right so how is it how, how can we satisfy the both of these schools rule out all of these other guys and get to a full understanding of who Jesus is and then there's mystery in that mm -hmm. that's kind of the goal 
So, so it's not, they're not all three different guys that are just repeating the same thing. These are all just different facets of, uh, the erroneous facets of, of Christology, the, the, you know, the, the doctrine of Christ. So, yeah, three different bad answers to a central question. Yeah, and I'd say four if you had Arias, who we talked about last week, yes. Um, so, Apollinarius, let's look at, uh, um, well, let me give you the four councils, and then we'll come back to Apollinarius. So here's the four councils. We saw one of these last week, uh, right? Do you remember the first one there, the Council of in 325? Nicaea. Nicaea, yes. He answered it first. Who got it first? Young Zylstra did. Way to go. 325. Anybody want to take a guess at the one that happened in 381? Actually, we did talk about that one, too, last week. 381. Constantinople. 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 Yeah. Constantinople was the, we could just leave it at that. Constantinople, eh? Um, <laughs> Neapolitan. The Constantinopolitan. <laughs> the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, yes. So the creed that we're doing in our series is actually, remember, it started in Nicaea, and then they go, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then they had the anathemas. Anybody who believes this and this and this and this is, is anathema. Um, but that didn't make really the problem, didn't totally go away, remember last week? And so they had to do another council in 381 in Constantinople, and this is where they go, okay, now we're finalizing this. The, we're, we're making it official, Arius denying of the full deity of, of Jesus is out. But what I didn't cover in there is they were also addressing Apollinarius's view. In number two, they were. In, in Constantinople, exactly. So um, the first council in Nicaea, they had rejected Arius. In Constantinople, they reject um, Arius and Apollinarian. In the third council, which is a council of Ephesus, by the way, there were other councils in here that are very fascinating stories. Um, one of them is totally like, it's a mob takeover, it's a sham trial kind of thing. Um, they call it the robber, the robber synod or something like that. Um, it's basically a bunch of thugs in priestly garments and they took over them. And so uh, I think it's um, the, the last one overrode that one. And then the last one is uh, Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, Chalcedon. Ephesus, Ephesus is 451. Chalcedon is, um, which is a city actually really co close to Constantinople um, in 4, should I say 481? 431 and 451, yeah, so it was only 20 years ago. Um, at the Council of uh, Ephesus, they reject Nestorius. And Nestorianism. Let me give you a little bit of Nestorianism. Uh, Nestorius was, uh, he was from Antioch. He was a preacher in Antioch. He ends up becoming bishop in Constantinople. So he becomes a, you know, he's the, the big senior pastor at um, the capital city. And so he starts teaching a view that, um, if I could draw it out, 
I'm drawing it here from like Grudem's um, thing <coughs> here. That, um, that there's actually two persons in Jesus. There's a human person and a divine person. This is what he taught. A human person and a divine person. It denies, so basically what it is saying, and they're, they're, the, the two persons don't uh, intersect or don't meet. So it's a denial of the unity of uh, the unity of the person of Jesus. When, when you saw Jesus, there's two different persons. Sometimes the divine person and sometimes the human person. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like that. Because then you're like, well, wait a second. Then, then how how does that really fit with uh, then which is which? When you're reading the scriptures, which one are you, which person is doing the talking or acting there? Mm -hmm. Right? So which, which, which for an Alexandrian... Why would they have a problem of that based on their interpretation of the way they would approach Scripture? Because you would have to have some sort of mystical ability to go look at a text and go and to parse out, oh, that's Jesus acting as God. Oh, that's Jesus acting as man. Right? Well, from an Antioch school, maybe it wouldn't be so hard. Well, of course we could read it in allegorical kind of spiritual um, they were maybe able to divine uh, where Jesus is acting in what way. But wasn't it the Antioch school that had the literal historical interpretation? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Right. So maybe I got that backwards. Okay. Yeah. But Nestorius was from Antioch. So maybe that doesn't fit. I think he was influenced by the, the Antioch school. Nestorius is the is this. Yeah. Yes. This is separation. this is Nestorius, yeah. So he's denying the unity of of persons in Jesus. And that is basically uh, rejected at the Council of Ephesus. And then let me give you the last view is Eutychus. And here you have in this the term monophysitism. You have physis uh, means um, person. Uh, could be nature, but usually it would be person. It's where we get our word for physical, as in like physical body. Um, so what uh, Eutyches said that what happens with Jesus is that there is just one um, there's one uh, one nature one person in Jesus there's a human one and a divine one um, and it creates kind of a third person nature 
Okay? So if I could draw that one, it'd be like this. Here's the, here's the human, human nature. Um, and then here's like the divine nature of Jesus. So it's a little bit different than Nestorius's, which would have you know, these two different persons. Uh, he solves the, the issue of the two natures, the divine nature and human nature, by saying, well, it's just they stay as two different persons. Um, so that's ruled out in Ephesus. So what, what, um, what Eutyches said is, well, what's actually happening is that it, it's, he still has one nature in one person, um, but it's more like a fusion of the human and the divine to create a whole third nature. Does that make sense? I think the illustration that he gave is it's like a drop of wine in the ocean. So he's not denying, or at least he's, he doesn't say that he's denying, he's, he's not denying that Jesus had a human nature. It's just when the human nature and the divine natures come together, the human nature just gets absorbed into the divine nature almost to the extent that it would disappear. Like a drop of wine in the ocean. Like a drop of wine in the ocean. A drop of wine is the human nature. A drop of wine would be the human nature. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. The drop of wine being the human nature. The drop of wine is still in the ocean, still in the sea, in theory, I guess, you know. Now, what would be the problem? What would be the problem? We saw a little bit of the problem of, uh, of Nestorius's view that you have. You don't really have one person in Jesus, you have two persons. So the way to solve a riddle of how you have the two natures uh, into one person is when you go, well, in one person you actually have two persons. What would be the problem of that? And then what would be the problem of the Eutyches view? So this is like this third, uh, we call this uh, a God-man nature. That'd be like Eutyches. Well, one of the problems with the two is now... This one? Yeah. Yeah. It's now that the the Trinity's three in one, but Jesus is two in one. <laughs> and Yes. And that means he changes. And he's not the same yesterday, today, and forever because he's changing. So it almost takes on even a modalism component. And you would never know how he was speaking or functioning if he functioned simply as a man here or a God there. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that does go against the, the idea that, you know, he's, yes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I'll come to that. What about the uh, Eutychus view? What would be the problem with this one? It's just weird. <laughs> well, it's like now creating a whole other level of... It's like a six-in-one. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's almost making him more like, uh, okay, now he's um, a little above the angels, but yes. a little below God. So... He chose in his humanity to become a little lower than the angels, to be born here, to put on human nature, to put his divineness into human skin. So he chose to be a little below for a time, 
and now all of a sudden you've got this another level where it's, you know, well, there's women mixed in there a little bit, but he's mostly divine. Yeah. So it's not 100% and 100%. Hmm. I see yeah. all of them trying to relate to bring Jesus to our level. Like to explain him in terms that are simple right. for us to understand. Yeah, like oh, Jesus, well, he's like this, like you, but like he's this. Line. Yeah, water. Yeah, like you know, it's like a puzzle piece. Like just trying to almost justify. Um, and I don't know that's sort of like you said, kind of like the heretics aren't heretic, maybe heretic light. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you call it that. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, I've heard worse heretical things than this recently, obviously, yeah. but like, yeah, like heretic light, but almost like they're like, man, I really, I'm tr I want to explain this to people. I think that might be the motivation. You're saying that's their motivation, yeah. Right, yeah. I don't know if the motivation is denying Christ at all or, you know, like that. I think the motivation is like, I want to be able to explain this yeah. to people, and it, it's difficult to, to, we have to have faith in this and just have faith, mm -hmm. you know, without kind of explaining anything. Yeah. Well, there seems to be a common thread of thinking that we ought to be able to understand God the same way that we understand physical objects around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. pictures. If you're drawing pictures, you're kind of losing, you know, <laughs> in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's... I think, Steve, you're making a, a good point. These are people that maybe have, they're genuine believers. They're genuinely wrestling through the text and are trying to understand this just like we would, mm -hmm. like we do. Right. Um, and they're proposing things and then they're getting pushed back. And it's, so that's what I mean. It's like, it sounds maybe like, are you really splitting hairs? Can't we all just get along? You know, <laughs> yeah. except that they, some of them go, no, this does have some implications that we need to get right. Mm -hmm. We need to try and reconcile these. How do these views, how do we understand all this? Right, because I see each one of them has implications for salvation. Yeah, right? right. Because if God, if Christ is not fully God and fully man, he does not save us. Yeah. So that's... Ingrid is, uh, brings up a point, too, uh, a little bit. What, what happens from in these, uh, in the fourth century and the fifth century is you really do have a question that starts off with um, how can one nature divine nature how can one nature be in two persons and three right because then they go well wait the Holy Spirit's a right. person too mm -hmm. and there's attributes of deity there so the, the question is wait a second how do you have one nature in three persons without it being one-third of the nature, the fullness of one nature in three persons. And as that kind of gets hammered out in the Nicene-Constantinople thing, then you have a next question is, well, now how do you have, how do you have one person with two natures? Right, because that's, that's the issue here, right? And these, these discussions, they're trying to figure out, okay, well, I believe that, that um, you have one God that exists in three persons. Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Son is God. So one nature, three persons. But when it comes to Jesus, how do you have 
two natures, human and divine nature, in one person, Jesus. So that so it becomes kind of a continuation of that. Do you see how that goes? Mm -hmm. So, but aren't correct me if I'm wrong? But all of the all of these objections, all of these questions, seem to stem from the premise that we can and should expect to understand an infinite God in the same way that we understand objects. Yes, I I think that's a very good observation. There really becomes, when you're dealing with the nature of, because what, nature's, what nature do we have? We have human natures. So we're already different than God. He's not just a bigger version of us. God is God. He has an entirely different nature. Um, uh, and, you and that's before we're even sinful. So, you know, we talk about our human nature. Even before sin has entered into the world, there's still a, a, a chasm of difference in the nature of God and the nature of human beings. So, uh, so you're right. So us, as humans, we have a, a, there's a limitation on what we can, how we can comprehend the divine nature. There's always going to be a, uh, a mystery. <laughs> there's always going to be, at some point, you know, you, you know, like you see railroad tracks, and like, well, do they ever converge down? Like, at some point, it's kind of a, a mystery. Maybe that's a bad illustration. Um, and every time you use a physical illustration, it's <laughs> don't draw things. If you're drawing, you're losing. Um, <laughs> but do you see, like, uh, so on this side of eternity, maybe even still on the other side we're not going to fully grasp, fully understand how different aspects of God's being relate to one another. I think you're exactly right. So, what do good theologians do then? If you're explaining... What's that? We say, what does the Bible reveal to us? And we can be happy with that. Yeah. And leave it... Leave it at that. You're basically, we're putting the guardrails down, which we know this is true and this, so it can't be beyond that. So it has to be here. And it can't be beyond that, it has to be here. So we're going to say, we're going to protect that. And then say, and that's got to be okay. And use the language that, that satisfies that. Well, that gets us to the back page then. But before we do, um, so there's the question. Oh, those are the two questions there. How can... Um, the two questions there underneath the four major councils how can one nature be in two and then three persons this is what Nicene and Constantinople were working out and then how can one person have two natures this is the study of Christology and that's what Ephesus and Chalcedon were working out so here are the key terms um, hypostasis I'll do these in blue <laughs> or purple or something um I, I, and I kind of risk getting too much into to the differences here because we're really getting into the weeds. Uh, usia, and then that's uh, homoousia, right? We saw that last week. Um, usia means it means essence, the essence of something. 
Hamausia means the same essence. So remember, uh, who, uh, who was it that was became uh, emperor and he was influenced by Arius and he's like, hey, can we just can we just add the little I? <laughs> can we add the Yoda in there and make it similar? He's of similar essence to. And then Athanasius says, uh, no way, no way, Jose, that's not gonna work. Um, and then Physis means person in nature. And then another one here, Prosopa, that means face or person. It's the, it's the word for face, but it's also representative of like a person there. And then the last two here are, um, Theotokos and Christotokos. Okay? Theotokos, which means God bearer, and Christotokos means Christ bearer. We could do a whole thing on those words and how they debated those words. We just can't get, I don't think we can get into that tonight. Um, but it's helpful to know, like, hypostasis uh, um, means, like, the nature of a person, and it's very similar to usia. They were synonyms, but some, but remember there was some confusion of one used the one as one way, and the person, anyway. Then uh, physis means, like, person and nature, but this one will emphasize persons eventually. Prosopa definitely means person. Theotokos means God-bearer. Mother of God would not be a great translation of that. God-bearer would be a better one. And Christotokos. Now, why, why do I say the, the Theotokos one? Uh, because that's what uh, Nestorius had problems with. He actually preached a sermon and said, we should not be using a very traditional term to describe the Virgin Mary um, that was going around and was part of the liturgy and, you know, the Apostles' Creed, right? Born of the Virgin Mary. Um, so the title of Mary traditionally was uh, Theotokos, bearer of God, God-bearer. And Nestorius uh, says, no, we should not be using that. Why? Based on what we know of Nestorius's view. Right? That's, that's where he had a little bit of the problem to say, oh, I'm just we're a little uncomfortable to say. He's carrying he's God, the divine person. <coughs> There's two persons there. There's two persons there, but yeah. he's saying that she couldn't carry the divine person. She could only he could probably she could only carry the human person. Yeah. And so he wanted to use, well, she was, the, she was the Christ bearer, and so he lobbied to do Christ bearer, but that didn't ever, that never took. So, so let's look at the, uh, on the back of your page, let's look at what they resolved after several days at the Council of Chalcedon. And so this, and what you see there is the full statement at Chalcedon. This is not a snippet, it's not a, a section of it. This is the full res resolution statement here. And then I put a little bit of this in code here for you to help. Um, the Alexandrian concerns 
Remember the Alexandrians? Uh, they tended to emphasize the what? Spiritual. The yeah, the spiritual in terms of interpretation. When it comes to Jesus, what did they tend to emphasize? The deity. The deity, right? So if you spoke of him too much as a human person, that they got a little, you know, they start some of the other heresies. They started to get a little worried. You started to sound a little bit uh, Arian. Um, so the Alexandrians were concerned about that. The Antiochian concern was what? What is? What did they tend to emphasize? Humanity. His humanity, because they were very concerned about some of the other teaching. It was saying, no, you you have him like Apollinarianism. You have him like just disappearing. <coughs> or or even you or uh, Apollinarianism is the. You don't have him being uh, entering into fully. He's just a physically human, uh, or the Eutychian view is like, um, no, you have him morphing into like a, a drop of wine in the sea. So they, so they would have some very much concerns there too, because you want to say, wait, he was a. You have to emphasize that he was a human person, and by human person, I don't mean just his physical body. He had to be a human person. He had to have a human mind, will, and emotions. So the Alexandrians would say, like, the Logos, his mind was the Logos of God. His will and his motions were all divine. But the Antiochians would say, no, he had a human will. He had human emotions. And he had a human mind. So the symbol of Chalcedon is doing what kind of Brandon had suggested. And that is, how do we, how do we, Put the guardrails up around all of it and protect the mystery of this. So then let's, uh, somebody want to read? Maybe read a couple of phrases. From the we, back? No, yes, I, it's I, on the back. Yes, sir. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of reasonable soul and body. There you go. So stop there. So notice the part in bold. One and the same son. It's addressing the, Cal the, the, the Alexandrian concerns. And then notice this. Um, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood or humanity. Okay, that's addressing the Antiochian concerns. So we're affirming, they're affirming both here. Um, somebody continue on. We ended with manhood? Uh, he ended up with a reasonable, reasonable soul and body. A truly man reason, of reasonable soul and body. Yeah, so he's saying yes. He had a, he had a human soul. He had a human body. Okay, consubstantial. Uh, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. There you go. So, so <laughs> what it's saying uh, there, consubstantial uh, of the same essence with the Father. Can I see yours? Okay, yes. So that's the, I didn't put the Greek word in mind. So you notice the, the Greek word there, homoousion? Homoousion? 
means same substance. So that's what consubstantial means. It means of the same substance. So this Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. He has the same essence as God the Father. And he has the same essence that we have. Say, how is that possible? No, you're going too far. You go too far. You have to have pump the brakes there. You have to go, wait a second. It's good enough to say he shares in the fullness of the essence of the deity, the fullness of the deity of God the Father, and he shares in the fullness of the essence of what we share in our humanity. Right? You're starting to see which ones these are ruling out, hopefully. Um, continue on. Internet manhood humanity. In all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. There you go. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. According to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Okay, we're going to go ahead and stop there. Let's go back and look at this. So in... Uh, in all things like unto us. That's addressing the Antiochian concerns, right? He's exactly like us human beings, except without sin. Begotten before all ages in the Godhead, but in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Who is that going after? Nestorius, remember, because he started, his whole controversy started with a sermon on why we shouldn't call, there's the Greek word there, theotaku, means of, uh, he is of the mother of God, or other, yeah, it says mother of God, I think that's just a bad translation, because this is where the Catholic Church then, because of these debates about this and Nestorianism, and the fighting back against, hard against Nestorian, who, Nestorius, who wanted to only emphasize well, she only bore the Christ. We don't really want to say she bore God. They would argue so strongly back, no, she is the God-bearer. This is where you see the beginnings in the Catholic Church of the reverence for Mary. It develops from this point. So where does Mary get this such an exalted state? Um, it comes from, I think it's an overreaction, you know, the harsh reaction against Nestorius, and then as that festers and and builds up, you you now have a whole other doctrine that is bad. So, um, but that is addressing the Alexandrian concerns, right? Um, so you said one and the same uh, Christ, Son, Son, Lord, only begotten. See, that's emphasizing the Alexandrian concerns of emphasizing His deity, right? And then you want to pick up from there to be acknowledged. To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusively, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Stop there, okay? That whole line there is addressing the, the Antiochian concerns. You have to acknowledge he has two natures in the one person. And you don't divide them. You know, you don't you don't divide them out like Nestorius tried to do in terms of well, how do you understand the two natures? Well, you have one nature per person, so you have two persons. 
They said, no, 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 you can't confuse the persons. You can't have a person be like a drop in the, the, uh, the, the drop of the human nature and the divine of the, the sea. You can't um, confuse them. You can't have them interchangeably, indivisibly. They're indivisibly, they're all of these, uh, these both natures at the same time. Uh, somebody continue on. Where are we stopped? And concurring in one person and one substance. Subsistence. Subsistence. So this is the hypostasis there. Yep. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Yep. So two natures in one person, but not two persons. So it, Chalcedon actually ends up uh, addressing almost all of these. Um, and so it, it definitely addresses the Eutychianism, but it's, a, it's kind of a, a catch-all for all of these other ones, too. I mean, where, reading that, from what we remember about Arius, where, what line in there refutes the Arianism? Would you guess? with the Father according to the Godhead, that's refuting the Arianism. So Arianism's out. What about um, Apollinarianism? Where is that refuted in here? What was, is it, is what was, what does Apollinarianism deny again? His human nature. Yeah. Well, his human nature, the fullness of his humanity, right? Because they're not God. denying that God he, and he was a human, but it's a God and a bod, exactly, right? So what, what lines do you think here might be uh, an, a deliberate attempt to refute Apollinarianism? In all things like unto us without sin. There you go. In all things like unto us. Consubstantial of the same. So remember, the homoousion was used for uh, for the um, the same essence of the Father. They turn around and use the same Greek word to say, and of the same essence of, of us. So that refutes the that refutes and addresses the Apollinarianism. Um, Apollinarianism would also say that there's only one nature in in Jesus, right? Which nature is it? <clears throat> just the divine nature, right? There is no human nature. The human nature, it's just the body. So what about the line here? Uh, to be acknowledged in two natures, in two physine. Fourth or fifth line up from the top. Underline. 
Okay. Just try to make make us all think here. Try to go back and see if you can find. You mean up from the bottom? Yes. It's an underlined part there. Um, right after the one and same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in bold, and then to be acknowledged in two natures. So that's against Apollinarianism? Yeah. And another one? or uh, Yeah, that would seem, they could do another one too, right? Which other one would that address? Monophysitism, yeah. Right. So they deliberately use the word two with physis. And so, yes, it's going, that's, that is uh, the specific line right there that's going against the Eutychianism. Because it's, he says, no, there's only one nature there, right? It's a third one. It's a, it's a unique one. But that was a way of saying, but there's only one nature. They, they couldn't, they, they, you can see one of the hurdles here is it, it's hard to understand how one person can have two natures. So they kept defaulting to one person, one nature. Except for Nestorius, like, well, he goes, yeah, one person, one nature. And so how do you get both natures in one person? Well, you create two persons. There's two persons in one person. One person has two persons, and each person has a nature. Apollinarianism says, I just use the body. It's still only one nature. One nature per person in the body. Uh, Eutyches says, well, it's a mixture of, good, of divine and human creating a third one, still one nature, one person. You see, all of them are one nature, one person. And so what, what Chalcedon is saying, you guys have to get this. You have the fullness of two natures in one person. We have to leave it there. That's the testimony of all the scriptures. And all of your attempts here will fall short. So do you have a picture for us as to the way we should? <laughs> <laughs> no. How about, how about a great big leap of faith? Yes, that's right. How do you that's go, this, is, this is a mystery, right? How, how do you understand this? It's a mystery. Yeah. They're making like, they're defying like the, they're defying like the second commandment. You shall not make a, try yeah. to create <laughs> an image of God. image of God. Yeah. In the image, it's oh, it is. It's almost like they're trying to create some so you can see it and worship it. Like yeah, if we can just see it. We know we can worship mm. it. You know, that's a. It, yeah. If you think in, in our heads every day, we're trying to like you know, who is he? What is he? What you know? Yeah. So you're getting ahead of us a little bit because that'll be in the next couple okay, of centuries. I'll, I'll stop on. Oh, um, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I won't go ahead. <laughs> so I mentioned one hero here to uh, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, who was, um, the, the descriptions that I read of him is that he was very brilliant, but he was a jerk. They said he was really, I think they just said, he, you know what, he, he was really was a jerk. And he held grudges, and he was very, uh, very cruel, and those kinds of things. But he did, uh, he was one of the ones that fought very hard to say, we have to understand <coughs> That uh, in the person of Jesus, when it comes to Christology, you have, he wasn't the only one, but you have to have two natures. You have to have both natures fully in one person. Um, 
So he came up with the, oh, let me say one thing real quick. So he, he came up with, and you may have heard this, and it should make a lot of sense now. How many of you have heard of the phrase um, hypostatic union? You've heard of the phrase. How many of you don't, have you heard of it and don't know what it means? Okay, there you go. Don't know what it means? Now you do. Uh, hypostasis, hypostatic union, is the term to describe the two natures in one essence, united in, uh, in one, the, the two natures united in one person. Union, the, the two uh, natures united in one person. That's the only way I can say it. I'm going to keep trying to say it in a different way, and I say it the same thing. So any questions? Oh, yeah, you had a question. Yeah. Okay. So this is about as clear as mud for me. Like, can you, in, like, simple words, tell me, like, what are the biblical guardrails that this huge paragraph is supposed to lay out? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't get it. You know, um, and I had, I have some scripture, a whole bunch of scriptures that to, to look at. Um, like, how would I explain this to Lucas in a year or two? Yeah. Um, Define, explain. <laughs> <laughs> Just the biblical guardrails. Like, here's what the Bible says. We're not going to go yeah. this way. We're not going to go this way. But here, I've got two natures united in one body. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, um, without using those kind of languages, I think as if you're going through the scriptures, when you see you know, a, an account of Jesus, you're going to see accounts of his humanity. Right? You're going to see, give me some examples of, um, and this is where this is this could be why it was very difficult to understand. I mean, if you once you got over the two person, two natures and one person thing, it was easier to understand. But what was not in debate was, except for the docetism that we saw weeks and weeks ago, right? Jesus only appeared to have a human body, right? Dos, from Dokeo, you know, like he was God, but he was just kind of like it was an apparition. He wasn't really a human body. Um, I think a lot of people rejected that because they go. Well, where does it say that Jesus is human? The answer is everywhere. <laughs> he was born, right? He was born of a virgin. They were in they were in their little cave, and he, they wrapped him up in clothes, and people came to see him. Like the difficulty in seeing Jesus as human was not a, was not a hard one. Um, what are some other examples of Jesus's humanity that you can think of that you maybe identify with? He cried for his. For Lazarus. He wept. Wept, yep. Yep, he wept tears. Mm -hmm. Got tired. Got tired? How do we know he got tired? Slept in a boat. Slept in a boat. <laughs> That's right. Oh. And so you could say, like, you know, Lucas, you need to take naps. Jesus took naps. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that goes tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so hard. It, Mia... Mia is a night owl. She was. She always stays up till really late. I'll get up, like I'll wake up at three in the morning, and I'm like, "What is that noise?" She's sewing, like one of the dresses that she makes. She's just sewing. She's like, she's been like that since she was a kid. And we would try to get her to go to sleep. And one time, she had a Jessie doll. I don't know, you know, from Woody. And we're like, we are exhausted. And we're like, 
I mean, you just you need to go to sleep. Look, Jessie's Jessie's ready to go to sleep too. And she goes, No, she's not. Look at her eyes, because your eyes are like, <laughs> like, oh, you guys know this now. Like, you yeah. know Mia. You're like, yeah, you saw that early on. Um, but anyways, that, but back to Jesus. He took naps. He slept. That's something I think little boys can I I should identify with. What else? What are some other examples of Jesus' humanity? He needed to spend time with his father in prayer. He needed to spend he time. Yeah. Needed some alone time. Got up and would they have be in solitude? That's a human. That's a human thing. Do you think that could also speak to his divine nature, like that relational? Like he needed that relational time with his father, mm. in the same way, like that we need. I don't know, because I, so like, I've also was thinking, like, so how, like, if we throw ourselves into this now and, like, our nature with the Holy Spirit's nature, like, how does that fit together as well? Like, does, is that touching on the fact that, like, our Holy Spirit needs that intimacy in prayer with God the Father as well? I don't know, like, I just don't understand how that, how we all fit together, how Jesus fit together. Yeah. Yeah, so the ways, uh, you mean, like, how, what the implications are for us in our humanity through Jesus? What, what I guess, oops, let me explain a little more to you. Mm, well, so, like, you were, earlier you were saying, like, in the past, they would think of themselves as, like, soul, spirit, and then physical. So the mind, will, and emotions all fit into yeah. the soul and the spirit. So that's our nature do I understand that right yeah that's our nature but then we also have a physical body yes so then if I have a human nature and a sin nature and now I have the Holy Spirit's nature like how so do I have three natures in one like well no because I know like our sin nature has been crucified yeah. I just need a picture. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no pictures. <laughs> Talking to the elementary teacher yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I can give you a picture, um, let me let's turn to uh, turn to Colossians chapter three, and maybe this might give you a picture. Okay. <coughs> So Colossians chapter 3, it says here, and this is from the ESV, I'm curious to know if you, do you notice anything that jumps out in yours that, that you would like to share, uh, let me know. But it says here, if then you have been raised with Christ, so now he's talking to, to believers here, Colossians 3, oh verse 1, yeah, um, so if you have been raised with Christ, Okay, so he's talking to Christians here who have been united with Christ by faith. And he's saying that when you're united with Christ by faith, like Paul wrote elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, mm-hmm. that when, uh, when we are united with Christ, we, are, we have died with him, as pictured in our baptism, and we are raised with him, also pictured in our ba- baptism, to walk in newness of life. So he says here, um, he's building on the implication that as believers in Christ, we are raised with Christ. 
If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Okay, pause there for a moment, too. This is, as, as, as an aside, uh, this goes to speak of Jesus' humanity. He still is Jesus, fully God, fully man, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, right? So, um, so he's seated at the right hand of God, and this is also a picture of, of supreme authority. So he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now he backs up, and he says, that's what you got to do in the meantime. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, uh, which is idolatry, idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, the image I wanted you to see there at the end of those, which is also, I think, connected to the baptism imagery that was practiced uh, at the time, you had stripped off your clothes, you went into the baptismal waters, you came out, and then you were given a, a new new clothes. So what he's saying here is um, the image I wanted you to see was to put off the old self. Okay, he's, he's talking about garments of clothing. So if you wanted an image or a picture, um, if that helps, you're to, you're to take off this, this self that is a sinful nature self, and then you are to put on the new created self uh, in Christ. Right? Um, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Does that help in terms of an image? Like, what do we, how do we understand? That's just the image I came mm -hmm. up with when, uh, when you asked where, if I could get a picture of how to do this. Mm -hmm. um, the taking off of the clothes that are associated with. The, the sin nature and putting on Christ mm -hmm. or a new image or new identity in Christ. Mm -hmm. The image I came up with is fitting. I don't know if it's right, but when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, all are born of water, so mother's water breaks and the baby is born. And so Jesus went through that step in his humanity that all must be born of the Spirit. And so when we accept Christ and we're born of the Spirit, then that's being that's partaking in the divine nature when the Holy Spirit indwells in us. Yeah. But then Jesus is also the first fruits of resurrection of our, the physical body coming back to life, which all believers, dead and buried, will have heaven. And for those who aren't dead and buried, who rise in Christ physically, 
who are still walking the earth will be raptured. So it's the, the redemption of the physical body, too. Mm -hmm. That was the image that came to my head. Which, you know, everybody keeps asking you from the very beginning, why are you still here? <laughs> so now, <laughs> that was the image that came to my head. <laughs> Did that help? Were there was there another part to that too? Because you were talking about we talk, yeah. talked a little bit about Jesus's humanity <coughs> and where you can see that in the Gospels. You can see that as he went hungry, tired, mm -hmm. you know, thirsty. But then you could point to the his the divine parts of him too. And so as you're talking with Lucas about those things or reading the passages. Uh, it, at least in your mind, maybe not in his, maybe he might ask you, <laughs> you know, wait, how is he doing those things? Like, to just say he's fully God and fully man. Mm -hmm. So those are really, that's like the two guard, the two guardrails that the Bible has. Is that yeah. We don't understand exactly how they fit together. Yeah. That's a mystery, but the guardrails are he was fully human, he was fully God. Yeah. What about, and I may have missed it when I stepped up for the bathroom, but like um, about, did you say something about limiting? He made himself a little lower than the angels? Oh, yeah. Or, or the passage when they ask, the disciples ask him about the end times, and he says, like, I don't even know, like, that's only the Father knows that. Right. So how would you address someone that says, well, how could fully deity not know if he's in perfect relationship with the Father or or sharing all the same information like how yeah. would you address that yeah um yeah i've heard a couple of explanations of that too and it, uh, it sometimes it borders on this it's like well well that was that was just human jesus answering that question you know it, 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 which kind of sounds like a little nestorian like um i'm not sure i know what a great answer would be other than to say like um because there, there clearly are passages that Jesus knew what was in the mind of man. He, he didn't need to be told what, what was in the mind of man. He, he knew. Mm -hmm. And he knew even the thoughts that the Pharisees said. Not that they were grumbling out loud. He says he knew their thoughts. And knew it wasn't what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. And so there's some aspects of that that would be certainly point toward a divine side. And maybe it, just in Jesus, is, is it his human nature? Uh, or that, that part of his nature that goes, yeah, right? It's not for us to know the times or dates that the Father is set by his authority. And not even the Son knows. Yeah, that's, I, would, I guess I would counter it with there's other passages that speak of Jesus doing, knowing things that nobody else could know about God. Uh, but then there's other passages. Jesus says, there's some things I don't know. I'm not giving privy to that. So you have your picture of the Trinity where you have God, but God is three yeah. beings, and Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yes. But Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Good. That's, that's a good point. That's a really good uh, example. We, did we hand that out? Was that in one of the handouts? One, on one week? Did we? Not, well, I had missed a few classes, but this, that's just from your sermon. This is actually, if there was a drawing, then I would be like, okay, that, that works. 
back to like the Arianism, right? Like Jesus is God, but he doesn't know quite as much as God. Yeah. And he can fall into that. But I think like if you go back into the Old Testament, the interaction with the other humans, like Abraham, uh, God wrestles with Jacob. Who's wrestling with Jacob? God's human form is wrestling with Jacob, which is, I mean, you can, I'm not going to, put myself in saying that was Jesus, but that's God's human form interacting with humans. Moses couldn't look at God, so how could Jacob wrestle with God? 
you know, like, so you go back and in these different stories, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that's what, that's what gives me more faith in Christ than most anything is going back and looking at, like, the interactions of God, which Jesus is God, so, you know, through the history and through everything, I mean, we didn't have Jesus' name until after he was born, so we don't know, like, Melchizedek, we go, you know, um, and the Spirit of God rests in the temple, like, and, you know, um, so all those things, like, God walking in the Garden of Eden, that's his human, probably his human form, because if no one can look at him, how could Adam and Eve look at him in the garden, at, even at that time, right, during the fall? Yep. How do you know you're naked? Yep. You know. Usually they would, they would say human, but right. like what you're saying there too, of all of those things, it, they would be, a lot of those things would be the angel, the angel of the Lord. Right. You know, but it's not necessarily human. Right, yeah. It's yeah. more of a, a little, yeah, to, to just point, make that one distinction there. But mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, the uh, a theophany of sorts. Right. Yeah. Charlie, yeah, you had raised your hand earlier. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but you answered it. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Philippians says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Mm -hmm. Yes. So as far as him not knowing something that God knew. I mean, he had the ability to lay some of his, some things down. Yeah. He was on a mission. That was the main goal. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that passage because I just turned there, there too because this is one of the ones, this is one of the passages that would be used by, uh, what should you use that? the Apollinarianism would use the Philippians, although many of the other words too. They, the emptied himself. Okay? The Greek word is the kenao uh, <coughs> uh, is the word. It means or kenosis. Kenosis. means to empty. To empty oneself. And so what is he emptying himself of there? That's the debate. Some, some say, well, yeah, what he's emptying himself of here is part of his deity or aspect of his deity or attribute, certain attributes of his deity. Um, I think, I don't think that's a good way of looking at it. I think what he's emptying himself of here is uh, all of his, if I could use the word prerogative, all of his, the prerogatives that he would be entitled to. Because um, that fits the context here. He's, he says you should, you should be uh, um, do nothing from rivalry or conceit but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves and then this is when he uses the example of Jesus don't look to your own interests but also the interests of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped like he's not saying Paul's not saying here Jesus didn't consider himself to be deity um, he's, he's saying he actually emptied himself of his prerogatives so that he could come into human form and serve humanity. Yeah. What chapter and verse? The Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3 through 7 ish or so. 
see what my footnote says here. Um, yeah, taking the form of a servant um, is a way of saying, like, he, he, he came, he put on human flesh. That's John's language, too. You know, God, God became, God the Son incarnated as a human being. And in doing so, that's what he's opened up the opportunity to be able to serve humanity through his suffering and dying. But yes, that some take it as he. This is him emptying his deity, and I think I think that's a lot. I don't think that's the the right reading of that. I think in the context, it's more like he's. It's not saying he's emptying. He's only partially God coming down to earth. Um, it's saying no, he's just emptied out. Um, it, it's it's what was Paul's term to describe what needed to happen for the Son to come and serve humanity. As a, as a human person. Amazing how much clearer things are when you read verses in light of the context. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think that's kind of the main point. I mean, yeah. here, you should be humble with others uh, and because Jesus, like yeah, because he's, Jesus emptied his deity. Or, right. or is it, you should be humble with others and have a similar mindset as Jesus did because he emptied his prerogatives. To, so he can come to right. earth and say, I mean, that, yes, I think the context <laughs> helps. Um, because the descriptions of in Revelation of how the, God is worshipped on the throne and everybody laying, all of, everybody laying down their crowns and worthy of the lamb and it goes on and on and the it, seraphim and the cherubim are worshipping constantly. Je Jesus said, I deserve all, you know, I do all that. Yeah. I'm due all of that, but I will take the time and I will walk away from it because I love these people yeah. and I want to, you know, bring them back into right rela perfect relationship with us. So he's willing to he's come, setting aside what he's due, yeah, what he's worthy of. To be born to of be a woman, humbled. to be a child, to to as Luke says in Luke chapter two, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, like. Jesus was a teenager, right? Um, now, unless you follow the adoptionism thing, like we saw several weeks ago, that, well, he was, the, the Logos adopted Jesus at his baptism. Or you go, wait a second, no, Jesus was, even though he was a teenager, he was still fully God and fully teenage boy. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy to think about, especially those of us <laughs> who have no teenage boys. Like... <laughs> Right? Or were one. Yeah, but he was fully God, but yet he's in, in, his, in his human nature, he still grew physically. He didn't come out as 33-year-old bearded Jesus. He grew physically. And he grew in knowledge, too. He, he would go to the synagogue as a boy and learn and read and study Torah and and he's, he's reading and he's going it's not like he's going hey I'm the guy that he's talking about he goes I'm the guy he's talking about <laughs> like um, it's kind of mind blowing to think of like wow it's kind of fun to meditate on the nature of Jesus what these guys were doing right so do we see like Peter or Paul like anywhere in the New Testament wrestling like with these same heresies like address, um, addressing them like why does yeah. it seem like 
they first come to light 300 years later? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, well, they, they clearly knew Jesus was human, right? Everybody did. I mean, it's, it's really, like, let's go back to, to docetism. Um, that, that had to have come later because nobody who lived in, in the same time and area where Jesus was would have ever even suggested, a, well, he only appeared to be human. Like, they would be like, oh, he totally he saw every part of this. So that for them, it was to go understand, wait a second, God is... The divine nature is like he's he's infinite. He's omnipresent. He's those like he's unseen. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. They um, but they didn't have a problem saying, like Peter in his confession, "You're the Christ. You're the Son of the Living God." That was his confession. Like who do people say that I am? Not they say you're. Um, uh, who's the prophet? You need Elijah. You say you're you're. Uh, they say you're like Elijah. And who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That's huge. We'll get into that in our in the Nicene series. What does that mean? Where does that come from in the Old Testament? Like Steve was talking about some example. Where is the Son of God in the Old Testament, and what? Um, who is that person? And what's his status? Um, yeah. I, I would think the disciples would have wrestled the most with the Jews because the Jews believed that Jesus was the Messiah until Jesus said, I'm God. And yeah. then the Jews said, oh no, oh no, you know, and that, you know, we can't. We don't believe that, but that's because they didn't know their own scriptures. Yeah. Um, and what, how Isaiah and so many others have described what will happen with the Messiah. So yeah. they. So then, uh, then when Jesus's human form, you know, humanity was killed on the cross, then the Jews again were like, "Oh no, 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 no!" You know, because he died. So you know, we can't accept this because the Messiah would never be put on a cross, that's a criminal's death. Yeah. And again, they just didn't know their scriptures. So I think they would have wrestled constantly with the this, the, the second one, the human person and, and divine, the divine person. person yeah. You know, because the Jews would not have accepted that the Messiah was also divine. Because yeah. they just didn't read enough. They were focused on the rabbinic law to keep all the rules because they had yeah. gone into religion mode versus relationship mode. Yeah. And the Greeks wouldn't have thought of a God who would die. But uh, the supreme God, you know, not, not the, the little word ones or anything, but the supreme one being crucified. Yeah. There was another question. So what are your, just, just kind of close it up here with some discussion, how, I know it's only been you know a couple of hours we've been looking at some of these things, but how do you, in looking at this, um, 
How does this change the way you, th you see Jesus? How's this refined for you or giving you a different understanding about, um, about Jesus? What learned or what school would you have tended to fall into? Alexandrianism. Alexandrianism, okay. That's what I was trying to get, right? I think you do. You, bu you bounce between them sometimes. When you, yeah, when yeah. You, then you have to put attributes to them. Yeah. And you start thinking, okay, because, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, okay, he's fully God, fully human, and. Like the, like the question is, could he sin if he wanted to? And you say, well, of course he couldn't because he was God. Yeah, well, and he wouldn't have wanted to. Yeah, yeah. So, so to to break that down into what you said, we will get to. Um, so, so yeah, you kind of bounce between them sometimes. Yeah, yeah you got to bounce between the guardrail, right? Yeah. Oh, 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 it's kind of like so, pinball. I just feel like I've realized like how shallow my understanding of Jesus really is. But I think maybe like my thought would be he could have sinned, but he had no need to sin. He doesn't it's like the his nature is not to sin. So even if he he had he had no need to. Like there was no desire because that's not him. Yeah. But right. but but, then, but wasn't he fully human? But he was fully oh, human. Man, but I, I I mean yeah I'm probably gonna go to some heretical. <laughs> but he was really hungry. He was hungry. Yeah. He was hungry. But that's not a sin to be hungry. He ate healthy too. He ate broiled fish. Yeah. It's not a sin to cry. My doctor yeah. tells me I need to eat more of that. And yeah. Right, to read yeah. Jesus to it, and I'm like, all right, that's okay. <laughs> but to, so yeah. he, had he had human nature, but he didn't have a fallen human nature. Is that fair to say? Right. Yep. He's he, perfect. He, had yeah, human, right. he was fully like our nature in every way, except without sin, like the Chalcedon, like Chalcedon says, right? Um, but not just without <coughs> sin in his actions, but also without his nature having fallen. Yes, right? Okay. Yep. So we're saying he's the second Adam, mm -hmm. so the first Adam really could have chose the right way. Yes, that's, there's a big debate about that, but I actually agree that that's actually true. That, that there, was, um, there was a covenant in the garden that had Adam uh, followed the covenant, it would have been righteousness and life for him. That would have been his reward. Um, didn't work out that way. Um, but you're saying you believe he had the power to make that choice. Yes. In yeah. that sense, he could have. Yes. Even yes. though God knew he wouldn't. Right. That was that whole, we, we did the uh, uh, posse picari, non-posse picari, posse non-picari. The, the, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was possible it was possible to sin, but it was also possible to not sin. But once it's, once he sinned, then it's now impossible. Now it's no longer possible. Non posse non picari. It's not possible to not sin. <laughs> so. Just to get to all of that, I think 
think the reason is simply that Jesus had perfect love. And so he loved the Father to the perfect degree that he didn't sin, so he had a human nature like we have. But in our human nature, we actually love our sin. Yeah. And first Adam loved, loved the sin of wanting to know the difference between good and evil and have and to become God-like, you know, that no secret that the serpent tempted them with. But when Satan tempted Jesus, he loved, first of all, he knew the scriptures that Satan was twisting, so that's one thing. Yeah. He was still omniscient and all-knowing of his own word, but he loved the Father more than he loved putting himself above the Father and taking the promises of this world. So yeah. the reason why he could be sinless in his human nature is because he was actually perfect love. Mm. Yep. Yep. For love for his father and love for us, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in John's gospel, we'll get to we'll get to this too, where a um, couple places in John's gospel, you'll see that the father sends the son with on a task and if he does it the reward for that is the people that God gives to him and so that's us so his coming is to obtain the reward of his people his inheritance yeah yeah his inheritance yeah um, just to read that br briefly you could read it on your own um, and I encourage you to do this but in John's gospel. This is some pretty mind-blowing stuff here. When Jesus prays this prayer in John 17 as he's praying to the Father you know, the, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you that you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, right, that's the the God the Father, if he sends the Son, the Son, I come to do my Father's will. If I do my Father's will, I get the people that he sent, that he gives to me. And he goes, and then when I get them, you give them to me, I give them eternal life. And this is eternal life that they know you. And so I help them to know you. So you give me the people, I give them eternal life, and I do so by helping them to know who you are. You've seen, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says, right? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I've glorified on you, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now you know that everything uh, that you have given me, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth, that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Right? What is going on here? That's, it's 8.30, it's too late to unpack all of that. But to point on that, that idea, Jesus coming as fully God, fully man, fully divine nature, fully human nature in one person with the, uh, the specific, uh, to be tempted in every way that we are and yet to do so without sin 
to live perfectly and righteously under the law so as to gain this people. <laughs> he goes through all of that to now gain this people. And then what does he do with those people? He gives them eternal life so that they can now experience everything that, that he and the Father and the Spirit have. It's amazing. It's amazing. How do we get that? Just believe. Just believe it. Do I need to go up to heaven to go get it? Do I need to go down? To, do I need to go up far reaches of the earth? The word is near you. It's in your heart. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord and believe. Um, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. So let's, let's, with that, let's close in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks and praise, and we thank you for the glory of your son, Jesus, the mystery of how your, your divine nature and our human nature merge into him is truly a mystery, and yet it's so necessary for him to reconcile us uh, to you. And we thank you for that wonderful the love that you've shown us that he came and he doesn't just come to teach and, and instruct he came to even take the penalty that we deserve on the cross and what magnificent love that is and so we thank you we praise you for the name of Jesus and we pray that that, uh, that what we've learned here tonight would just be the beginning just the tip of the iceberg I pray God that you would stir into us a desire to meditate and reflect upon um, on the person of Jesus and his work and uh, help us to know him more uh, so, as, so that we can know you more. For you tell us that that is eternal life and that is what we, what we desire. And so uh, we pray you stir that within us and fix our eyes upon Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray and by the power of the Spirit that we pray. Amen.